Okay. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Current Affairs. I'm Frank Downhauer, your host for today's talk by Daniel Perez on Eastern Europe and the Spirits of Personality. Daniel is a deeply thoughtful person and has written several articles on the spiritual streams behind technology as we currently know it. I think you'll find he has some interesting insights into the current spiritual emergence in Eastern Europe and in the world. But before we begin, I wish to invite everyone participating in the talk today to actively formulate questions and join with us in an online discussion afterwards. To ask your questions directly, which is preferable, please select the hand icon below in your Zoom controls. You may definitely write your question in the comment section if you like. I will try to get to all your questions within the time that we have. Any questions we can't get to, please leave them in the comment section of the talk's landing page where the recording from today will be placed. Daniel will be monitoring these comments and will respond as they come in. I would also like to mention of this year's Mystic Conference, which is our fifth annual international conference. And we're very excited at having being held in person this year in the Seattle area, as well as online, August 11th through the 13th. Daniel Perez will be there as a presenter, and he'll tell us a little bit about his presentation at the end of his talk today. You can learn more about the Mystic Conference by going to events, .org. I sincerely hope that all, you, all of you can join us in person for the conference or online. But we also understand all too well the current conditions we are all being forced to contend with. We want everyone to attend regardless of their means. We have in place a way for one to ask for assistance if one needs it. Please do let us know how we can assist you in attending. We want you to be there. With that said, what is our current state of affairs? There is today a kind of clash of the titans happening right before our eyes. We, that is most all of us, are mere spectators to this clash, or it may seem. The world as we have experienced it throughout our lives is being forced into a geopolitical change. It is true, this change is not at all uncommon, from the standpoint of history, but this time it is not just for a particular geopolitical or geographical area, such as Ukraine. Now it is for the world itself. For some, this may still seem too sensationalized to believe, but one need only consider what has come out of the World Economic Forum this past week in Davos, Switzerland. They're ushering in of the fourth industrial revolution on the advancement of AI, and their push to colonize the moon and then Mars. What we have experienced as the war in Ukraine, the talk of nuclear retaliation in the wake, and all the multitudes of social upheaval that is now plaguing our countries is not the result of the past few years, but of the past hundred years, if not longer. Only now in the past two years has it come out into the open for all plainly to see. History books will reflect in, this, in its pages of this time the current social political ideals of the day and those of the victor. This is the way of written history. It is fluid through the dominant ideology. But for the spiritually awake and those that can interpret the cosmic memory of world events, one would be able to see something that is quite different 
Rudolf Steiner saw how the First World War tore the Germanic and Slavic folk souls apart and how this was done by secret societies bent on the separation of these two spiritual influences from coming together. This was done in order to shape their own desired outcome. The result of this meddling took even Steiner by surprise, and he had to refocus his attention in another direction, specifically childhood education. Trained historians record the movement and actions of people and events, spiritual scientists, on the other hand, and it is a science based on a repeatable outcome when following certain steps in the attainment of spiritual sight. Read the spiritual undercurrents that play out in the physical, both the beneficial and the backward spiritual forces. One can read a history of the clock, but for one to experience the true nature of time itself is infinitely more fulfilling. <clears throat> the former is limited and contained, like the world events we face in our daily lives. It squeezes in upon us, causing anxiety and depression. The later one finds the current affairs of the world as a necessary development in the awakening consciousness of humanity. One then can feel gratitude for being here right now to experience this transition from one state to our next. What then are the spiritual beings that are working through the crisis of our day? And how are these beings showing themselves in the current events of, wor of the world stage? Daniel Perez has thought deeply about these questions and is here now to share his research. But before we go into that, a little bit about Daniel. He is a computer scientist in the Boston area. In the past, he has held top secret clearance working at various military facilities for more than a decade. He's been an anthroposophist since 1980 when as a Waldorf High School student, he attended his first youth conference he is now president of the Center for Anthroposophy, the teacher training and renewal nonprofit and CEO of Threefold Strategies Fund that seeks to return capital from the financial markets to the current cultural domain. His spouse is a fellow spiritual scientist and his son is a Waldorf teacher in San Francisco. His daughter is a writer and a deep sea fisher woman. While Daniel is not a historian, he is deeply engaged in world events and derives research from his esoteric meditative life and is a regular speaker and writer. So Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you very much, Frank. Um, yeah, and thank you for that, that warm introduction. And uh, I really wanted to point out um, that in the anthroposophical world, current events have sometimes not uh, been as much of a focus as they could be. Um, and so we do our esoteric studies and we have our study groups and so forth. Um, but this focus on current events, I think for our time is gonna become more and more critical. So uh, hats off to you, Frank, for, for bringing these, these events to so many people. Um, I wanted to start with uh, a verse that Steiner wrote during World War I that was keeping in mind the sort of uh, the, the violent nature of World War I, the, the, the mass number of, of deaths of dying uh, soldiers uh, 
not just soldiers, but civilians as well. Um, and so he, he, gave, uh, he gave multiple talks about uh, the events of World War I. And he also wrote, wrote uh, some verses. So let's start with that, that verse, just to keep in mind um, some of the gun violence that's happened in the US, as well as the Ukraine situation, of course, is on everybody's minds here today. Spirits ever watchful, guardians of our souls, may your opinions carry our souls petitioning love to the human beings in the spheres committed to your care that united with your power, our prayers may radiate with help. Before I go into the introduction of the, of the, of the talk, um, I just wanted to raise the question of nonviolence given the nature of our discussion today. And I think in anthroposophical circles, spiritual scientific circles, I think we all carry this question, um, how to approach the world, especially when it is such a violent place in this day and age, and how do we carry the wish and hope for peace? Um, you know, I think, I think for one, we have to recognize that good and evil is not a binary thing. It's sometimes represented, uh, I think, because there have been complex bad actors in human history. We have, uh, let's say, uh, Lenin or a Stalin and, and uh, Hitler and, and so forth. Um, and in these individual cases, there are such bad actors that it's easy to kind of say, okay, well, that was really evil. Um, but generally speaking, in society, we all carry some good and evil within us, and we're all struggling to evolve. And the nature of tolerance has to do with the recognition that we're all evolving and working and um, labeling people either good or evil is, is not really helpful. And it's not really true to the nature of the this, of this spirit. Um, so... I wanted to give a, a brief uh, picture about my own experience with the question of nonviolence um, as a way to conceptualize the struggle that it means for all of us. Um, when I was a Waldorf High School student, uh, I went to this youth conference and I had a connection with a, with a Christian community priest. And out of that, I received two mantras um, which were one of which was the one that I just spoke uh, because my mother was going through cancer treatment, entering hospice. And so these mantras became part of my routine for as she went through hospice and eventually died and crossed the threshold. Um, and it was the first, my first experience of really taking up Steiner's work in any way because uh, I was only in high school at that point. Um, but through that experience, I also had a uh, Waldorf teacher of mine whose husband was the, my trombone teacher. And through him, um, I ended up going to these workshops for nonviolence and we studied Gandhi's biography. And I had to register as the, for the draft because Reagan had reinstituted uh, registration. And I registered as a conscientious objector to war in any form out of this work with this group of nonviolence 
group. But there's always this other side and uh, that's what I wanted to kind of bring. You know, the group was wonderful and the study of Gandhi was wonderful, but I also got some propaganda out of the group, which was very um, cold towards the sacrifices of military people. And I brought that propaganda home. My father saw it and we sat down and talked because he had been, he had watched Hitler rise to power. And he explained to me, you know, what would have happened if people had not stood up to Hitler? And so for me, it's been a lifelong journey from that point of kind of questioning, well, what does it mean to wish for peace and to work for nonviolence and yet recognize that there is, we are in physical bodies and we have to sometimes protect those bodies. Um, anyway, so that's the question of, of nonviolence that I wanted to share. Um, and in terms of the clearances that I've worked with the US government, uh, I'll bring some of that in potentially when we talk about the Ukraine conflict. Um, I know a tremendous, tremendous amount through that, through a decade, over a decade of working on uh, secret projects uh, about intelligence gathering and about um, some of the intelligence work in Ukraine that is helping the Ukrainians. Um, uh, but my work has, was always on defensive uh, aspects of technologies that were defensive and protective, protecting against either nuclear missiles or gathering intelligence that would help in a conflict like the one in Ukraine. So that brings us into uh, an overview of, the, of what I'm gonna present, uh, the main core of the talk uh, I'd like to introduce. Um, we have spiritual hierarchies in human history and those spiritual hierarchies work into the physical and they work mainly through human beings. And we can see them very evidently in the Ukraine conflict. So we will look to understand those spiritual streams and those spiritual beings and the hierarchies and how they work into the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the conflict is clearly a proxy for East, the East-West struggle as well as East-West religious struggles. And we'll talk about Orthodox Christianity uh, versus Catholic uh, Christian Christianity and some of the differences there. We'll also talk about then um, what are the spirits of form, the backward spirits of form and the spirits of personality. Um, They're also known as the excusi, the spirits of form that is, and the spirits of personality are known as the archai. Um, there's other occult names for these beings, um, but we'll, we'll review those hierarchies and what they mean in archetype. Um, and then how do they manifest in religion and in civilization? And how do we find our own relationship to the normally evolving uh, streams, both the normal evolving spirits of form and the spirits of personality or archive? We could say very much that you know Ukraine is a reflection of the struggle of the emergence of the human eye, and we'll see through the history of Ukraine how that's manifested. Um, for Steiner, Germany most centrally represented the uh, 
was most essentially the representative of the human eye as each nation sort of carries a certain um, mission. Um, but Ukraine is, is right very close to Germany and it's caught between the West and the East. So it carries some of that as well. And finally, we'll, we'll have a sort of a summation, a little bit of a meditative symbolic look at um, human history in three parts and how it can help us to heal earthly conflict by having a, a holistic understanding of human evolution. So with that, I'll go into um, the spirits of form and the spirits of personality and start with, you know, just a quick review of what the hierarchies, um, you know, a review of the hierarchies so that we're all speaking the same language. Uh, from the Trinity, if you were to come from the Trinity down to man, we know that there are three hierarchies according to spiritual scientific uh, conceptions. And within those three hierarchies, there's three uh, groups of beings. So if you start from the Trinity, uh, after the Trinity, the first hierarchy is the seraphim, which are also known as the spirits of love, the cherubim, spirits of harmony, the thrones, the spirits of will, kyriotetes, spirits of wisdom, dynamis, spirits of movement. Then you have the excusi, the spirits of form, uh, which we're going to be centrally speaking about. They're also known in the, in the genesis of the Bible as the Elohim. And then after the excusi, you go to the, the third hierarchy, after the middle hierarchy that I just gave. And you go to the third hierarchy and you have the archi, which are known as the spirits of personality, the archangeloi, the folk spirits, and the angels, who are the spirits of light. And we are going to focus primarily on the relationship of the spirits of form to the spirits of personality, because they have um, a very important role in the evolution of the earth and in conflict anywhere on the earth. Um, the spirits of form are first brought in Genesis. In the very beginning of Genesis, they, they are the Elohim and they are the, what is referred to as God or the Elohim. They're the ones who brood upon the waters. And in spiritual scientific terms, the spirits of form are those beings who have already gone through their incomplete uh, spiritual evolution so that uh, at the time of the earth incarnation, they have already completed their seventh uh, incarnation uh, of their planetary incarnations. And they are now of, of a power where meditative force is so great that they can actually create matter. And so when they brood upon the waters, they're actually forming the matter of the earth. And um, in the Hebrew, uh, they, the transliteration in Hebrew is yom, 
which means eon, uh, because they're kind of timeless. And right after their brooding on the waters and their formation of matter, we have the first differentiation of matter, which takes place in the separation of the heavens above or the waters above and the waters below, and then the earth from the waters. And this separation actually then is a handing over of the responsibility of the formation of the earth to the spirits of personality or the archai. And the transliteration in Hebrew is yam, is yam uh, which means sea. And we can see this connection to the seas because it's a differentiation. The spirits of form are active in many levels and you can find them through spiritual history, through human history. Uh, the physical form of the human body is inspired uh, when the Bible says that we are in there, the form of God, it is in the form of the spirits of form. Um, we also find in different disciplines through human history, a way of understanding the archetype of the spirits of form and the spirits of personality, um, focusing on the movement of the from the spirits of form to the spirits of personality as a kind of continuum going from the ancient world to the modern world, you could say is, this, is a transfer from spirits of form to the spirits of personality. In music, we historically as human beings um, only heard octaves. And then there was a time when we heard fifths and thirds. And there'll be a time in the future where we can experience a symphony in a tone. And this is uh, something that is hard to conceptualize today. But in, I think in our meditative work, we can conceptualize what that might that experience might be. Um, and in that history, you even had in the Pythagorean, the early scales, you had a Pythagorean mathematically pure form, which kind of represents the spirits of form. That Pythagorean form of musical tone in scale um, is considered, would be, is sounds out of tune to us today. And it's because mathematically it was pure. Um, and I believe even Nostradamus may have commented on the purity of the tones in the Pythagorean scales, but we've adopted the Western uh, scales uh, because they actually, they don't have this dissonance that we can experience. They work within the human soul spiritual makeup. And so you can see kind of this movement of archetype from cosmic wisdom, cosmic intelligence to individualized human wisdom and intelligence. And that's the movement that we're interested in. In religion, of course, we had early religions of Buddhism and, uh, of course, Christianity and Islam. Uh, and then you move into the Christian churches and you have these dynamics between the Pope of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, um, where even the conception of the Trinity is very different. The Orthodox Church is more connected to the spirits of form and therefore, the Trinity is one whole without divisibility. They're all equal. 
and this was a big this was a big uh, schism in the church between the Orthodox and the Catholic, um, where the Catholic Church, the Western Church, wanted to have you know this uh, God the Father as the original being, um, and so you also see this this reflected somewhat in Jesuitism and Protestantism as well, where Jesuitism tends to be more of this form, overall forming, and the Protestant is more of the individual that's active. And then it brings us closer to our main topic, which we're now gonna go into the heart of, which is civilization. And I'm gonna start um, by reading a quote from Steiner on his description of how the spirits of form and the spirits of personality work into, uh, med you know, mainly uh, medieval history, history from the mystery of Golgotha to modern times, you could say. Thus, European life from the fourth century AD onwards is the scene of a continuous spiritual struggle. The archai contend with the backward excusi, the spirits of form, who had remained behind, for the possession that had once been rightfully allotted to them in the course of world history. Everything that happened in the Middle Ages, in a west to east direction, and also in an east to west direction, all the surging migrations of peoples, all the mutual antagonisms and hostilities from the Hunnish Wars to the Turkish Wars, from the tribal migrations to the Crusades, where everything always takes either a west to east or an east to west direction. All this is the physical, the historical reflection of a spiritual struggle taking place behind the scenes of world history. Historical happenings on earth can be un understood in their reality only when we see them as reflections of what is being enacted in the sense, supersensible spiritual world between the beings of the higher hierarchies. And think something that I just realized I may not have made clear enough, and I'll, I'll clarify right, right now, is that there are the original spirits of form that helped form the earth and helped bring you know, early forms of music and art human form, but then there were some spirits of form who fell behind, who uh, not out of renunciation for their evolution, but they actually couldn't make the step and they didn't want to let go of the cosmic intelligence. And so when I was reading that quote from Steiner, um, I want to be clear, he was referring to these conflicts of war as spiritual beings who are not in their rightful place. And so they've fallen out of their normal hierarchical position where they should be working. And so the terminology used is normal spirits of form, normal spirits of personality and backward uh, spirits of form or spirits of personality and any, any hierarchy, they all, we all, all hierarchies, including human beings can fall into this, you know, can fall away. and. And, um, and so that falls into this question of good and evil as well. Okay, so the next um, thing that I wanted to raise then um, is in Ukraine history, 
a little bit of uh, uh, background on Ukraine history and where they sit in Europe. Um, I, I happen to have traveled through Eastern Europe uh, after I graduated from college and um, learned a lot about uh, the different ethnicities, um, particularly in what was then Yugoslavia and the terrible war that broke out only three years after I'd been there. Um, and in Ukraine history, there's also an interesting, it's you know, not as diverse a mix of ethnicities, um, but there, for, for Europe, um, there was uh, a fair diversity in Galicia. A lot of Jewish people settled in Galicia or in that region, in, in Ukraine region overall, um, and in Galicia. And I wanted to mention Galicia in particular, it's a region of Ukraine uh, because it has a connection to Ireland and Spain. Spain has a region called Galicia. My maternal grandparents came from that region uh, that was had a direct connection with Ireland. And that's historically known even by modern historians. Um, Galicia in Ukraine has been a little bit more of a mystery. And, um, uh, but I, I believe there's a lot of commonality there. Um, so I see a connection in the sort of triangle of the, of, uh, the Celtic history. Um, so Ukraine as, as a whole uh, had trouble forming an identity. Um, there were periods of time when it had, you know, uh, some sort of rulership, but um, it, it tended to be caught in conflict with either Poland or Russia, uh, Lithuania. Um, there were, uh, you know, there were different groups that uh, infiltrated, you know, came into Russia and uh, as well as um, Ukraine. And from that came the Cossacks, which were effectively a hired uh, mercenaries to help protect these, these lands. Um, so that was sort of the sort of the early, the early years, but Ukraine, you know, never sort of formed real identity through this period. It was still always influenced either but from Poland or Russia. Um, and that goes into the 20th century, early 20th century as well. We then have, um, as communism comes into Russia, um, there's a great tragedy that takes place uh, where Stalin, there's a famine in Russia and Stalin needs grain from Ukraine. And out of that, millions of people were starved to death in 1932. Um, and so you have, you know, you have, even though Ukraine has historically been considered little Russia or the child of Russia, and um, you certainly have to have empathy for how it was treated if it was the child of Russia. Um, the Nazis then, of course, came in in World War II. And, um, you know, there's some history about certain groups that welcomed the Nazis, and that's brought a lot of questions about, you know, 
uh, loyalties and the, the nature of the Ukrainian people. Um, but overall, the Nazis came and killed millions of people themselves. And the large Jewish population, at one time, the Jewish population was almost like a fifth of the Jewish population in the world um, was, was in that region. Um, there's, there's very few Jewish people left in, in the Ukrainian region. So great tragedy has taken place repeatedly. Um, in 1945, Stalin sort of defined the boundaries uh, and that's when Russia officially, you know, really said this is part of Russia. Um, and then it wasn't until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 that uh, Ukraine declared independence. But uh, the reason that I connected it with um, you know, I, I kind of look at this Galicia region is because the independence movement really came out of Galicia. <clears throat> Overall, Ukraine is a very poor country. Um, and it, it similarly had an exploitation that was similar to what took place in Galicia in Spain, uh, where it was caught also in uh, various um, uh, uh, conflicts. If we look at religion in Ukraine, um, you can see even more this movement towards trying to find an identity. In 1596, you have the Ukraine Catholic Church, and this is over against the Orthodox Church. So there's sort of this religious split that, that takes place, and you have the Western Church, the the Ukraine Catholic Church is, is still has some of the rituals of the Orthodox Church, but it gives its allegiance to the Pope. So there's, there's a connection into Roman Catholicism. Um, and the Orthodox Church is really uh, from the Moscovite tradition uh, and, um, you know, fully, of course, carries the, uh, um, the symbolism from the Orthodox Christian Church in Russia. Uh, what is not often known or is, is, is not so talked about is, is that in January 2019, of course, after the Russian invasion of Crimea, um, there's a, a, what's called a Tomos from Constantinople Patriarchy, uh, which is the um, Orthodox Church. Uh, and they give, they declare the freedom of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church from the Moscovite. Um, so anyway, th this is an important sort of spiritual step that's taken in 2019 um, after they've, in 1991, they declare their independence. And it, it has a bigger impact in Russia than we recognize in the West. It's, it's very, uh, it's a, it was a big uh, important step for them. So we see also in religion um, overall that in the West, there's this focus on faith, while in the East, there's a focus on ritual. And the reason for the West being focused on faith is because we tend towards intellectualism in the West. Um, that's the dark nature of the West is, is this tendency. And 
to overcome that tendency, this idea of faith was brought where you wouldn't be rationally thinking through your spiritual path, but you would be more giving it yourself over to faith to try to dampen some of that intellectuality. Um, and so we also have kind of a negative connotation to faith as a result, which is true. Um, but it's also good to keep in mind why, what its history was. In the East, you have a focus on ritual because the Russian people naturally tend towards the spiritual, um, but incarnating that spirituality is their struggle. And so the ritual, the strong rituals helps that incarnation. In terms of the Archangel Michael, um, who comes into play, you have also a movement from the spirits of form, the normal spirits of form to the normal spirits of personality in when he's described as first, his first mission is for the word to become flesh. And then his second mission in, since the mystery of Golgotha for the flesh to become spirit. And certainly in the West, which is so focused on the bodily nature, for the flesh to become spirit is an important, uh, important inner development. So now in the, um, if we look at the spirits of form in modern society, I would say the fallen or the backward spirits of form in modern society, it's helpful to get the archetypes and to get now into the meat of current, current events. Um, and we'll talk a little bit now more about what's inspiring the war from the Russian side um, and uh, how we're meeting it from the West. So there's three main uh, aspects uh, of the spirits of form in, in conflict in general, of the fallen spirits of form in conflict in general. In nationalism, in globalism and in materialistic science. In nationalism, we can see the fallen spirits of form working through the ideology of Putin in one of the uh, sort of spiritual influencers and I would say sort of the mouthpiece in a way for, for myself to sort of understand Putin's mindset is uh, there's a spiritual philosopher called Dugan who wrote several books, um, but one of them that I read was Putin versus Putin. And he comes up with this fourth political theory. Uh, and the fourth political theory is very interesting because it harkens back to the ancient world and it, harkens back to wanting to return to, uh, to Eden, you could say. Um, so I'm going to read you, I'll read you a quote from Dugan on the fourth political theory. Quote, if we reject the idea of progress that is, that is inherent in modernity, then all that is ancient gains value and credibility for us simply by virtue of the fact that it is ancient. Ancient means good, 
And the more ancient, the better. Of all creations, paradise is the most ancient one. The carriers of the fourth political theory must strive toward rediscovering it in the near future. If you contrast this with Steiner, I'll quote from Steiner now, all the problems that could be solved out of the ancient states of human consciousness have been solved. The earth is on the descending stage of its evolution. The demands which arise today cannot be solved with the thinking of the past. They can only be solved by a mankind with a new soul constitution. There are no political, economic, or spiritual remedies to be taken from the pharmacy of past historical evolution. For from these past times comes the elements of fermentation, which first have brought Europe to the brink of the abyss, which will array Asia and America against each other, and which are preparing a battle over the whole earth. Now, Dugan is, um, he, he goes into a lot of different areas that I won't have time for. Um, he reviews communist history. Um, he, his attempt with the fourth political theory is to bring a more spiritual impulse in with communism. Um, and, uh, but he's very much was for the war, uh, not only the, the Ukraine war, but the Georgia, uh, you know, conflict as well. Um, anyway, so that gives you a little bit of a taste of, of nationalism where we, we don't work out of our individuality, but we work out of our nation state. Globalism um, is another interesting area um, because in globalism, we put our faith in institutions uh, and groups of elite individuals who are going to solve the global problems. And Steiner um, pointed to Woodrow Wilson as somebody who was carrying the fallen spirits of form in this ideology of trying to solve the world's problems through these institutions. Um, and just like with nonviolence, I know there's a place and a debate around this question of the League of Nations and the UN, and certainly it's a complicated topic. But um, we do have to raise a question about globalism in general, and Steiner did very clearly in his, uh, in his lectures. Um, and, and just to find the final point being that if you look at the Ukraine crisis, the UN was developed to solve ideally those kinds of crises. And even those who are major uh, enthusiasts for the UN have um, been disappointed. The third area of materialistic science, um, you know, is, is another whole topic area that we won't have time to go into. Um, Health is, is primary right now on my mind, uh, given the coronavirus pandemic, um, but how we've faced it is another area of question. 
and it's been an area of debate within anthroposophical circles. Um, there's been a, you know, a bit of an attack on anthroposophical medicine. Um, and uh, anyway, there's, there's, there's a question there as to the role of government versus the role of, of, of the individual in health. And certainly from an anthroposophical perspective, health comes from the cultural domain of the threefold social order, which comes out of the individual. Um, so protecting the individual rights around health is, is certainly something that would be towards the normal archives way of working. Steiner's description of socialism is also interesting, having given this background. Um, he describes socialism as the chaotic interplay of the consciousness soul and the sentient soul because it forms an external fraternity. And I think that um, all of us as individuals, we recognize these good impulses like social security and so forth. And um, we recognize the, the positive aspects of different uh, forms like that. Um, but we also have to recognize the danger of moving into external fraternities. And I found this description of the consciousness soul, the chaotic interplay of consciousness soul and sentient soul to be really a great description. And again, we approach these things as non-binary, non-judgmental. It's a matter of where we stand and what we understand is the right impulse for the moment. So on the, um, so let's go on to the normal spirits of form, sorry, normal spirits of personality. Uh, and then we'll go into um, the final conclusion and we can have a question and answer and it'll be great to hear what, what people's questions are and uh, what <clears throat> people have to say. Um, the normal spirits of form, uh, spirits, sorry, the normal spirits of personality or the archi, um, they, <clears throat> how do they work in the world today? Well, they certainly are active in spiritual science. Um, if you look at the main theme of spiritual science around self-knowledge and the meditative life, I would say that Overall, it's probably the most important uh, aspect of spiritual science to focus on, particularly in this day and age where there's so much conflict and division. The ethical individualism that comes out of the philosophy of spiritual activity that Steiner wrote, that idea of ethical individualism and how we meet the world as I beings, um, is deeply connected to the archive principle. And in particular, um, Steiner describes how we need to find a, a moment in our, in our uh, incarnation when we have a relationship to the archive. And I'll read a quote um, on that. Uh, just want to check. 
Yeah, I'll read a quote on that at the end. Uh, in Central Europe, if you think of the German Ich, it's formed out of I-C-H, I plus Christ. And so there's this Christ in myself, this strong relationship between the I and the Christ. And we really only can approach the Christ as individuals. Um, whereas in thinking, and this comes back to the Michaelic spirit, um, you know, the Michaelic spirit is working to bring thinking in along with the archai as well. Um, but in general, thinking overall is, you know, it's the same for everyone. Um, whereas personal relationship is the only way to uh, connect with the Christ being. Um, tolerance, uh, you know, is, is certainly in keeping with the archai and the spirits of form and looking at ways of changing the fractures in society so that we can still talk to each other. Um, my wife works with the organization called the Braver Angels in, in trying to bring dialogue between parties. If we understand the fallen nature of man, we start to understand that within political parties, we can't possibly find ethical individualism. We can find individuals who are ethical and we can find ethical individuals in individuals who are in parties. So I'm not, uh, not saying that uh, parties are not made up of ethical individuals. But as a whole, as a group, a party has a platform. And as soon as a party has a platform, it becomes an harmonic form. And by nature, you can only recruit people by having a platform. And then you recruit people and they have to stick to that platform or they're not part of the party. So you have this strange kind of dichotomy in there in, in the nature of parties that we need to be aware of. Uh, and certainly because individuals make up all the parties, then no party can really claim that they are somehow better than another or more moral than another. Uh, unfortunately, in the US, we get into this tremendous amount uh, of name calling in this regard. In nations, I think increasingly we're going to have to, you know, have an understanding that we are part of a nation and have respect for that nation's history but not limit ourselves to look at other nations as though you know, our nation is, is somehow uh, overall better. And I'll, I'll give a description of the soul qualities that each nation in general, just groupings of soul qualities of nations. Um, it's only five or six across the world that I'm gonna group. So you have to group many nations together. Um, but of those soul qualities and the soul bodies that they're associated with and out of those soul qualities and those soul bodies, then also the shadow side, what becomes the shadow aspect when something is not really idealized and achieved. And then of course, I've mentioned in science as well, um, we, we have to be on our guard to allow for there to be a spiritual impulse in, in the sciences. So if we look at these groupings, 
uh, general groupings. Um, these are from Steiner's work of his descriptions of, uh, of general regions. Um, you know, he describes Spain and Italy as connected most to the mission of the sentient soul. That is on the soul basis connected to the astral. And um, you could say that the shadow side of the astral is, is passions, un, you know, unformed passions. Uh, parts of Western, you know, France, um, Middle Europe, but particularly France uh, carries the intellectual soul that's connected to the soul body of the etheric. And the shadow side of that is intellectual abstraction. In the UK and the US, you have the consciousness soul in the idealized form. Um, it corresponds to the physical body. And the dark side is also just being bound to the physical and materialism and capitalism in, a, in an unbound way. In the East, um, there's still this force of spirit and, um, and that has uh, a positive uh, possibilities for the future. And the dark side of the East is the animal character. Uh, and then finally in Central Europe, um, and I know this is sort of European centric, I'm sure you could incorporate the whole globe, um, but that's, that's the way he broke it out. Um, you have the eye, the individuality, and clearly the incarnation of the eye is central to the mission of the earth. Um, and the darker side or the the uh, shadow side would be decadence and egotism. So from there, um, I wanted to now sort of present uh, three symbols and I'm hoping that I can share. So there's three symbols that I wanted to bring in, in conclusion. Uh, to try to also bring an imagination of what I'm trying to present in this description of the conflict in Ukraine. Um, there, in ancient times, there was the spiritual stream of the Tao that really worked into, you know, you have Taoist Buddhism and it's part of the ancient uh, principles that actually predated Buddhism. Um, the symbol is this sphere on the top, which is really represents a dewdrop. And then the horizontal bar representing the animal kingdom and the lower vertical, the plant kingdom. And then the next symbol is the Christian cross uh, that represents the incarnation of the eye in the Christ impulse. And now the dewdrop has converted to a vertical that represents the human being standing upright, that top portion. And you have the animal horizontal and the 
plant on the bottom. And the third phase or the third symbol is the rose cross where the dewdrop has kind of moved down into the symbol of the cross. And the idea of the rose cross is that you have, you've overcome death through the black in cross and out of that death force, out overcoming that death force through the spirit, you form these seven roses. And those are in a, in a circular form around the cross. And so you can kind of picture in this, what I'm trying to represent then is this movement where the spirits of form past the cosmic wisdom after the mystery of Golgotha to this, the archai and the mission of the archai, they're, being, they're beings who are closer to man and the beings closer to man help the human being um, bring the cosmic intelligence and the cosmic wisdom into relationship with their own spirit bodies. And we start to be able to form the life spirit, spirit self, life spirit. So um, if we also look at, you know, even the Russian uh, writer Dostoevsky, um, who wrote The Brothers Karamazov, uh, as well as several other books, um, but the one I'm referring to, The Brother Karamazov, in that he brings in the idea of the Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor relitigates the temptations of Christ. And in that relitigation, he focuses mainly on the the, uh, st the bread, the stones into bread, and and that he gave an opportunity to the Christ. He's speaking as though he is, you know, Lucifer and Arnamon. I guess from that perspective, he gives the opportunity for the Christ to turn the stones into bread, and that, and his argument is that that's what would really alleviate evil in the world, it would bring good to humanity and look at all the suffering that would have been alleviated. And in that is this idea of whether or not humanity wants freedom. And, and central to Steiner's work in the one of the lecture series that's the main one that influenced this talk, um, he is, it's the central idea is that we need to decide if we are going to become free beings. And in a conflict like Ukraine, we see this manifestation of the question of how we meet it and how we overcome it. And how do we fully incarnate the I and maintain our individuality? And so, with that, um, I will read a quote from Steiner to bring this to a close, and then we can have a conversation. If we grasp this thought, the thought of responsibility to the normally evolving archive, if we truly grasp our spiritual function in the cosmos, 
Then we shall also find the place that rightly belongs to us in our epoch. We shall be true men of our time. And then we shall look in the right way at what indeed is forever around us. Not a world of sense alone, but also a spiritual world. We shall regard the archai as the spiritual beings to whom man must be responsible. If as a member of humanity, he is to undergo his evolution rightly in the course of earthly time. We shall realize that in the present age, what was once the necessary world order is still opposed by all that has remained from those spirits of form who are still intent upon ruling over the cosmic thoughts in the old way. And this is the most important concern of civilization in our time. The deeper tasks of man today consist in this. Through a right attitude to the archive, the spirits of personality, to become truly free so that he may also adopt the right attitude to the spirits of form who today are not within their rights when they strive to exercise rulership over the cosmic thoughts as formerly, but were once the legitimate rulers. On the one hand, we shall find what makes life in the world difficult, but we shall also find everywhere ways out of these difficulties. Only we must seek for these ways as free individuals. For if we have no will to achieve a free development of thoughts, what could the archive possibly make of us? Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Um, I appreciate uh, everything you have brought today. Uh, could you um, could you describe a little bit more about how the how the backward spirits of form from the west and also the east are um, are playing out this uh, conflict in in Ukraine right now? It's uh, I, I didn't quite get that from your talk, but I understand that the spirits of form, the backward spirits of form are working through these two superpowers, I guess we could say, yes. um, to uh, bring about what? And how is the spirits of personality to, um, to bring about a different change in what sure. these two forces are trying to bring. Sure. So, um, so the one aspect of the spirits of form is a connection to the Luciferic force and the Luciferic spirits. And if you think of the Luciferic spirits as trying to separate man from the earth so that we are, uh, living in the spirit, but not connected to the earth. And then he can kind of separate us off in, into his own kingdom. Um, so the, I'll, I'll be crystal clear here. So there is an East West uh, 
uh, war that's taking place within Ukraine, within Eastern Europe. Um, it's not only been in Ukraine, uh, but in Eastern Europe. And in that war, we have the West meeting the East. And there are positive influences, you could say, um, you could find positive influences in some sense on both sides. Um, overall, maybe as a Westerner, I see it more uh, as a hindrance from the East uh, and, and more, uh, more positive on the West, but I'm also a Westerner, right? Um, and that's why I wanted to bring balance into the picture that on the West, we have materialism and we can get caught up in materialism and in dogma and in uh, our physical nature, which is what the Americas bring. Um, really this focus on the body uh, that we need to spiritualize. Um, but at the same time, the Eastern Russia, in this case, working in Ukraine, um, has been repeatedly taking advantage of Ukraine uh, for their own purposes. Uh, and it's, um, it was really an unnecessary war uh, coming out of nationalism and out of this ideology of the fourth, uh, you know, the fourth political ideology that's represented, that Dugan represents um, in his writings, uh, where they marry the Orthodox Christian church to the state. You know, now in Russia in general, the, the, the Orthodox church is more tightly connected to the state than in, in the West's structure. Um, Anyway, there's this sort of marriage, you know, and you have Kirill that's, you know, uh, represents the Orthodox Church, and he's a major backer of Putin's wars. Um, it's, it's a real, it, it challenges us to ask the question, okay, how do we raise up ethical individualism in this case? Um, what I didn't what I also didn't mention, I hope that that's clearer and, and if people have more questions, we can go into it. Um, but it is an East-West conflict. All of this description of the backward spirits of form, that's representative of some of the forces that are coming out of the East. Um, you have the normal archive, which brings something good from the West, but you also have uh, backward archangels and, you know, there's... Uh, all the hierarchies have their struggles. Um, so there's this setup of this, this conflict immediately is representing all of those religious conflicts, all of those uh, soul qualities of different nations that are not fully redeemed, not fully transformed, are being represented in, that, in Eastern Europe. Could you could you say something uh, in regards to um, <clears throat> uh, this one? Well, this question is from uh, Les. Uh, since um, Galatia in Turkey was so instrumental in forming an independent spirit in ancient times, what is your view on Turkey's current stance, not allowing Finland and Sweden 
into mm. NATO? Oh gosh, yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting one. Um, it, my perspective personally is that there's a little bit of religious fundamentalism that's come back into Turkey. Um, they're historically, you know, Turkey was one of these countries that had a pretty healthy separation between the uh, religious orthodoxy and the state uh, historically. Um, in, in the current administration there, it has changed quite dramatically. Um, and um, there's a lot of uh, mistrust of the um, of the military. Now, you know, there's, there's not, it's not without any reason the military always kind of kept things in order and made it, um, uh, so that, you know, the religious fundamentalists did not, um, have much of a voice. And I think some of the religious streams felt, uh, oppressed and muted historically. So there was a little bit of too much strength in the military at one point. Um, you know, I, I traveled, I actually hitchhiked through Turkey for a month um, when I was 22. And, um, you know, you, you could see the military presence and uh, you, you had this contrast between people going to the mosque and uh, a little bit of an authoritarian state and it kept the peace in a certain way um, but it also uh, led to a lot of distrust now we've kind of gone in the other direction i think that erdogan has kind of um is is acting a little bit out of you know more of an eastern impulse and a little bit of of uh religious fundamentalism that's come into his regime he certainly was backed by religious fundamentalists Sarah asks, um, what is your interpretation of the role and intentions of the World Economic Forum on this crisis? Mm, okay, another great, great question. Um, the World Economic Forum, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a, whole, a whole area of study. You know, I think the question that I always start with uh, when these questions come up, particularly questions around um, large, you know, globalist institutions, is where do we find a reflection of the threefold social order in any of these institutions? Can we find it? And um, unfortunately, for my, from my perspective, when I look at these globalist institutions like the Economic Forum, um, you know, I see you know, a way to manage society as a whole with, um, with, with centralized control. And that's a socialist model. Um, it has some positives, which has led to, you know, Europe falling into this uh, category of socialism, um, where you take care of everyone. But it's a but it ultimately is focused like the West is on uh, the, the physical body. And so 
you get into a problem where there's this focus on the physical body and you get dragged into materialism as a result. And if there isn't a mechanism for allowing the spirit and the cultural life to breathe in these institutions, you end up with a hardened form that oppresses people. And that would be, that's generally my concern. Um, you know, when you get into cryptocurrencies, you get into the future of where we're headed uh, with surveillance and cryptocurrencies, um, you know, there again, you're gonna get to a point where you can monitor every single transaction of every citizen. Uh, you move away from paper money um, and there's a, a certain lack of freedom that comes up at that point. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of dangers. And uh, if, if there was great wisdom being brought in and the threefold social order, the ideas of the threefold social order, then uh, you know maybe we could work work with it. Thank you. Uh, there's um, Mark asks. Could you speak to the goal of Western occult lodges? Is there an intention to isolate Russia as the future of the sixth epoch from Europe, especially Germany? Oh, great question. Um, yes, and, and, and so this gets into, you know, where as ethical individuals, we have to objectively put aside our own you know, personal biases and try to really look objectively at the forces at work in all aspects. And, um, you know, you can certainly see that, I mean, there's clearly a significant isolation of, of Russia. And there were some terrible missteps um, leading up before this point. Um, you know, I, I know that there are, there are topics that are difficult topics. Um, but one that I know out of my uh, clearance background, I had a particular perspective on because I had almost 12 years uh, working for the NRO. Um, I had a deep knowledge of the intelligence world. And I, I went into the commercial world after that. And then, and then the um, we had Trump get elected as president. Uh, and regardless of what you think of Trump, independently of him as an individual at all, or as a president, um, this Trump-Russia investigation broke out. And right away from my knowledge of dossiers, uh, I saw this dossier in the news and I was like, that's not a dossier. I was like, you know, this is like what a, you know, a jealous spouse might hire a, uh, you know, uh, a private eye to, to drum up, but it's, it's not, it's not a real legitimate dossier. So I had questions right from the beginning. Um, but it was interesting to watch because as I worked with people on, you know, in my, in my technology work, um, just, you know, in the corporate world and this things would come up, there was, there was a complete lack of openness to questions around, you know, and I would say, I don't think this is really valid. I don't see any evidence of anything. And now with Dugan, you know, with, um, with the investigation, um, we, we, we know that there was nothing to that investigation at all. And it, it consumed us for three years. Um, now, this is a long way around to answering this question about the lodges, but you can see 
in political parties, you can see in spiritual lodges, decisions that are made um, to affect the masses. And, and that's kind of where I'm coming to my answer that, uh, and in addition, in this particular case, we distanced ourselves from Russia in a way that wasn't true. It wasn't actually, their influence wasn't what it was, we were told it was. Um, this doesn't help our relationship, right? And so in terms of isolation of Russia, it doesn't help to falsely state things and do whole investigations that are completely based on false, false statements. And on top of it then, Russia uses propaganda to tremendous effect within Russia. But if we're gonna do the same, it doesn't, we don't lead by example and we're not standing on ethical individualism if we're gonna do the same exact propaganda work and it leaves Russia to, you know, the, those hawks in Russia to form their, um, their efforts. And so anyway, that's, yeah, that's my answer to that question. Yes, there is isolation going on and there's various reasons for that isolation. Thank you for that. Uh, Engborg asks, um, how could the war have been prevented? Could NATO and America have acted wiser? Only few in the West seem to even try to understand the pressure Russia finds itself in, or was the war unavoidable? Yeah, so um, that's a great question as well. Um, you know, I think as we, we try to answer those kinds of questions, um, there, there are very, very good points. You know, even when I was reading um, uh, uh, the Putin on Putin, um, the descriptions of the West coming out were quite apropos and there were very reasonable perspectives being raised um, about capitalism and runaway capitalism and this focus on what, what can take place in Western societies, this materialism that can come out of Western societies. So even from a spiritual perspective, you know, there are in these treaties that ultimately I find to be um, kind of warmongering and fascist in a way, um, there are points and perspectives to be made. And certainly the, spirit, the, the spiritual underpinnings of the Russian people uh, hasn't changed. They carry the spirit in a way that the West can learn from them. And that is, is, is strong uh, as well. Um, you know, in, in Steiner's work, he describes the folk spirits in Europe and in Russia, and he describes the Russian folk spirit as, um, as the unique in that it doesn't incarnate fully. Um, whereas there's these various periods where, um, uh, well, fully is a relative term, but uh, in Germany, there's these regular periods where the folk spirit will incarnate more and excarnate. Um, but then in Russia, it, it sort of hovers. And I think the way to think of Russia is, is very much, you know, most of communism really came out of the West. 
uh, Marx studied in the West and he came up with his ideologies in the West. And we've kind of poured those ideologies into the East. Um, so there's, there's a lot of karma to go around and there's a lot of self-knowledge that we need to bring to bear in coming to you know, a resolution to this kind of conflict. That's great, thank you, uh, Daniel. And um, I just like to uh, point out once again, or mention once again, that um, if if we didn't get to any of your questions, or if you have questions after you watch the uh, presentation again, on the page that we'll be um, placing the recording on, uh, just place your questions into the comment area uh, below the talk. And Daniel, again, Daniel will be monitoring uh, these comments and will respond uh, as they come in. So uh, with that, I just want to thank you again, Daniel, for all your outstanding um, work you've done and to all of you for your, all your outstanding questions. Uh, we could not have this series of shows without you and your willing participation. You are all greatly appreciated. Thank you. Now, before we all go, Daniel, will you give a short uh, introduction um, to your presentation at this coming Mistech conference happening here in Seattle again, August 11th through the 13th? Again, I encourage everybody to go to events.mystic.org to find out more. Yes, Frank. <clears throat> so the title of my talk. Uh, in the Mistech conference, uh, actually, I have you know two but two talks. Um, but the first talk is going to be face to face with virtual reality in the Lesser Guardian: the raising of consciousness and spiritual experience in the age of technology. And the focus of the talk is to look at our spiritual inheritance, uh, where we come from as spiritual beings, um, really starting from upper Devakon and incarnating, going through the various planetary spheres as we come into incarnation. Um, and the reason for taking that path is because I wanna try to give a clear description of the spiritual bodies and uh, then also relate that to uh, different forms of clairvoyance. Um, and this is all in as a background to then look at what it means to enter virtual reality and what virtual reality really is doing and its impact on us as spiritual beings. So um, if you think about virtual reality, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, it's hard to say how much it's luciferic versus aramonic, but it is um, both those beings are very active in virtual reality. You know, you have the um, aramonic very active in uh, in the idea of the you know entering into any kind of um, domain you want to, which could be a dark domain of thought. Um, but you also have the luciferic in terms of it being detached from the earth and that you can live in virtual reality um, without 
it mattering what's your surroundings and your relationship to other people um, and your relationship to other people only being through the medium of technology uh, and through the electric medium. Um, so we wanna, I wanna bring um, you know, some thoughts about uh, what it means to reflect on the lesser guardian of the threshold, have a consciousness of the lesser guardian of the threshold, um, and what it means to meet that lesser guardian versus go off into virtual reality, which is in the opposite direction. We can't evolve without meeting our lesser guardian. So that's uh, just a general uh, brief intro to, to what I'm going to cover there. Um, should I speak to the second talk? Yeah, you have two talks, so go ahead. Okay. All right. So the second talk is the warmth of life and cold of computation in etheric resonance and quantum computing towards an understanding of moral technology. Um, so I build on the first talk uh, with the background on the spiritual bodies and um, how they relate to technology, the modern, modern technologies. Um, and uh, then I'm really looking at um, the specifics of what's happening in quantum computing um, and with superimposition and entanglements in quantum physics, uh, the freezing of matter to the point where qubits can be formed. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary process to bring matter to absolute zero. Um, you talk about cold, uh, you talk about aramonic. I don't think you could have much better picture than uh, bringing matter to absolute zero where you can then start exploiting these uh, quantum um, relationships. And then, you know, the question is, you know, how does that relate to what goes on in this in our blood? We are blood beings. We experience the spirit in our blood. Our aura comes from the blood outward. Um, we have our chakra. And so this relationship of what a normal human being evolves is trying to evolve towards in the building of chakra versus um, superposition and these other effects that we're trying to exploit in freezing matter. Uh, that's the second talk. Great, thank you. Again, Daniel, thank you for all your um, research and your time here. And uh, we greatly appreciate um, your, your talk today. And we hope to have you back on the show uh, once again, maybe later after the, um, uh, the uh, conference, again, in August 11th through the 13th. And I hope to see everybody there, uh, if not in person, online. And again, uh, should you need assistance in uh, attending, uh, we have a mechanism for that on the website at events.mistech.org. Thank you, everyone. And we'll be back uh, later um, next month with uh, another show. Uh, and we'll see you then. Thank you all. Thank you to Good everyone. Day. Thank you, everyone.